Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. Hi, it's Susan. I'm going to be honest and yet vague. Thanks to a series of small events that kind of stacked up on themselves, we ended up with this huge stumbling block for this week's show. So the Joan of Arc audio clue of last week is not for this episode. It's for the next one. And there's a story that we're really looking forward to bringing to you. It's a woman who's been requested a lot, a lot, a lot. (laughs) I guess since we're not covering that audio clue episode this week, it's probably a good idea maybe to give you another clue, another audio clue. For those of you that are new to the show, right before we drop an episode, we post visual clues on our social media on Instagram, on our public and our private Facebook group, and on Twitter. There's nothing you can win, just bragging rights, but it's just kind of a fun way to know that there's an episode coming. Okay, so here's another clue. Last month, I went on vacation, and while I was there, I built a sandcastle. Yeah, that's the clue. That's the whole clue. Susan's on vacation, built a sandcastle, and Joan of Arc are somehow connected. And with our next episode, you'll find out how. Today, we're going to bring you a coterie of chicks, including the two most often requested subjects that we've already covered. Hedy Lamar from 2015, we covered Hedy Lamar, and Judy Garland, who we covered in 2013. There's also conversations about five other women that we found really interesting. And now, on with the show. Chapter 1, The Dishwasher Josephine Cochran had a problem, or rather, three problems in the shape of her three kitchen maids. These wanton wretches insisted upon chipping up the heirloom china after every dinner party, to the point that Mrs. Cochran forbade them from touching the dishes ever again. She would wash them herself. So, the morning, and afternoon, and evening, after a fabulous event, there you'd find her, among a mountain of dishes, with red hands from the rough soda used to clean them, and that same sense of remorse that most modern mothers have after they take away screen time. What have I done? Who am I punishing, exactly? Washing dishes gives you time to think, and maybe it was all that steam coming out of her ears that gave her the idea to look around for some kind of machine to deal with this. Wasn't there a machine for everything these days? To her surprise, there wasn't one. Well, not a good one. And so, Mrs. Cochran said, to her empty kitchen, Well, if no one's going to invent a dishwashing machine, I suppose I'll just have to do it myself. But I've gotten ahead of myself. Let me tell you the story. Josephine Garris was born in Ashtabula County, Ohio, on March 8, 1839, the youngest of the two daughters of John and Irene Fitch Garris. Inventing ran in the family, by the way, Mama's own grandfather held an important steamboat patent, and Papa himself was a civil engineer who had invented a kind of hydraulic pump. So, Josephine inherited this sort of thing from both sides. Papa moved the family to Valparaiso, Indiana, where he was the county land surveyor and was a man of some means. He sent his daughters to the private Valparaiso Seminary and was likely a man of some influence in this town of about 500 inhabitants. Mama Irene died during Josephine's school years, and I'm sorry to say I can't tell you when exactly. Um, even her headstone has no years on it. When Josephine was 17, her school burnt down, which was not that unusual in this age of kerosene lamps, and Papa sent her to live with her sister Irene, who had married and moved to Shelbyville, Illinois. At 19, she met and married William Apperson Cochran, a man of 27 who had definitely sown his oats as a gold miner and world traveler, but by the time we meet him was a successful dry goods merchant and local politician. They had a son named Hallie, 
who sadly died at the age of two, and a daughter named Catherine, and Josephine settled into the lifestyle of a wealthy socialite. Mansion, battalion of servants, dinner parties, and a bit of a name change. She spelled Cochrane with an E at the end, which did make William roll his eyes a bit. Uh, longtime listeners will recall that Nellie Bly was an Elizabeth Cochrane with an added E. I guess it was considered to be fancier or more refined with the E, like Smith versus Smythe. Or Daisy Bucket on the BBC, who insists on being called Daisy Bouquet. Also fancy was Mrs. Cochrane's China. From the 17th century, she'd make sure to make clear. A couple of ceramics experts I asked about this agreed this was probably Chinese export porcelain, that is to say, blue and white, or green and white. Though they seemed a little surprised that a Midwestern American would have this kind of thing at all. Sister Irene seems to have joined the DAR, so we are looking at the right people. Whether it really was that old, or just regular China with an E on it, if you know what I'm saying, it was precious to Josephine Cochran, who we last saw standing in her kitchen, covered in a wet apron and irritation. There were machines, at least two prominent ones, invented by men, but they relied on brushes to get the job done. Brushes? Most mistresses of the day wouldn't even let their servants use cloths on the dishes. For real. So, certainly no one was going to fix the problem of chipping dinnerware by banging it around with wooden brushes. You can forget it. So one day, facing hundreds of pieces of china to get through, Josephine had had it. I suppose I'll just have to invent this myself, she said. She sat down at a table, and within half an hour, she had her basic concept. Some sort of a rack that would hold firm on the dishes so they didn't joggle around, and then hot, pressurized water to get them clean. Over time, she kept working on it, refining it, and getting pretty passionate about it. Her husband regarded this whole thing as some kooky obsession for a woman with too little to occupy her mind. He was sort of a rising star in the local Democratic Party. You know, please direct your energy into calling and charity work networking, we'd say now. Some sources say that he was an alcoholic, and other sources merely mention poor health. But Mr. Cochran was ordered by a doctor to go take a rest cure, and off he went, not accompanied by his wife. He came back sicker than he went, and two weeks later, he died, leaving Josephine a widow at 36. You'd think he would have left her well off, but in fact, this epic lifestyle had been a house of cards. The debts nearly equaled the money, and Josephine was left with about $1,500. Now, for a sense of perspective, those kitchen maids from before were paid around $75 a year. But still, to be left with a modern $35,000 total as a person with no work experience or possibility of earning a living, that had to be a scary proposition. So now her thought was she'd go ahead and pursue this dishwasher for real. But she didn't know anything about, you know, mechanical engineering, exactly. And everyone she took it to for fabrication tried to just mansplain to her why her design wouldn't work. A quote from Josephine herself. They insisted on doing things every way but mine until they had to admit at last that my way was the best way. At last she found a willing assistant, a positive one, named George Butters, who was a mechanic on the Illinois Central Railroad. He came in his free time to work on making this dishwasher with her in a shed in her backyard. The original garage origin storyline, like Apple or Disney or Mattel, they patented their design in 1886 and installed the very first prototype in her kitchen and then asked for volunteers among her friends to beta test one in their own kitchens. Everyone that had one seemed to love it, but Josephine just couldn't crack the home market. She put the blame squarely on, quote, "...husbands who think nothing of installing comptometers in their own offices to make their own work easier but resist similar needs of their wives." A comptometer, by the way, is this new calculator that came out the year she was trying to sell her machine. I'll put a picture of the comptometer on the 
Pinterest board. The fact was, though, that Josephine's dishwasher was $75. That's the same price as a traditional maid who would presumably do more tasks than just this one thing. And most houses just did not have the hot water heaters to make this work. And more baffling or infuriating to Josephine was the feedback from the women who reported back that washing dishes was actually sort of relaxing and sociable and, no offense, but the dishwasher's pretty noisy. To which she responded, Well, women have not learned to think of their time and their comfort is worth money. So Josephine had another plan, a backup plan, a commercial dishwasher. Practically speaking, the hand crank system she had wasn't going to work in a large-scale operation like a restaurant. So she had some more challenges, converting to a steam-driven motor and adding an automatic rinse cycle before you'd just pour a tea kettle of hot water over everything. But the biggest challenge was overcoming the whole woman-in-business thing. There's a hotel in downtown Chicago called the Palmer House, which is still there, uh, right downtown. I had a lovely Thanksgiving there once, by the way. Highly recommend. She had a connection and an introduction to the manager, probably through Mrs. Palmer herself, who ran in the same sociable circles. And Josephine called on the manager of the hotel to sell her commercial machine for use in their giant kitchen and succeeded. Now, her second call, the Sherman Hotel, was a cold call. Ah, that was a lot more challenging. She said, I was so afraid to cross the big lobby by myself. I had never crossed a room without a man, my husband or my father much less ever had a business meeting. I'm, I'm amazed. But she got them to commit, and this is a very prominent place. The who's who of everywhere passed through here. And something magical was happening in Chicago. The Columbian Exposition of 1893, otherwise known as the Chicago World's Fair, was gearing up to feature products from all over the world in a fabulous place called the White City. Nine of Josephine's commercial washers were ordered to be installed in the pavilions to handle the enormous amount of dishes that were produced by 150,000 visitors a day to the fair's restaurants. So she contracted them out to be built to her specifications. And she won an award during the exhibition for her machine for the best mechanical construction, durability, and adaptation to its line of work. So she opened a factory to manufacture these. The company was named the Garris Cochran Dishwashing Machine Company, and George Butters, the original worker, was the boss. Uh, Neener to all those other non-believers, by the way. He did all right for himself. Josephine Cochran became a selling fool. She sold to hotels, to restaurants, and department stores all over the country, and she'd go out to oversee installation and training. When my husband uh, once owned a wood-fired pizza place, the oven they ordered from Italy, and when it arrived, it arrived with a guy, a guy uh, who, at the beginning, would tell the contractors how to install it properly, and then he'd go away somewhere, and then he'd come back a week before you opened to train the cooks. So that's kind of what Josephine Cochran would do with her dishwashers. This from a woman who only a few years ago was afraid to cross a hotel lobby. In the last few years um, before she died, this company was making quite a tidy profit. But after a year of unexplained illness, which she did work through, Josephine Cochran died on August 3, 1913, of either a stroke or exhaustion. Some years after her death, a company called Hobart bought her company. And I can tell you, as the wife of a chef, they are big in the restaurant industry. Hobart had started out as a place that made industrial motors. And then they got into a kitchen mixer that they ended up selling to the Navy for use on all the ships. So it paralleled the rise of Josephine Cochran's machine. They started first in an industrial application. 
And then those mixers were sold by an all-female workforce door-to-door as the KitchenAid mixer, the classic. Lots of us have one in our own homes even now. The home products division of Hobart became KitchenAid, a name we're all familiar with. Now, the first successful home dishwasher did not really come onto the market until the post-war boom of the late 40s and early 50s, but Josephine had made it all possible. I am going to put all the links for this chapter on our Pinterest page. In addition to the one for women inventors, don't miss the other board called Chicago World's Fair 1893. And make sure to watch for the videos. There are so many videos of early washing machines in operation on YouTube. I had no idea it was such a thing. So I will post a couple and you can find the rest. Chapter 2 the coffee filter. I hate lumpy coffee. Every morning my husband gets up before I do and makes a pot. Every morning he drinks one cup from the top and leaves me the rest. Usually as the morning goes on, I'll drain the pot, but sometimes I get to the last couple of glugs in the last mug and it happens. Instead of savoring them good to the last drop, I will get a mouthful of grounds, lumpy coffee. It's total user error on my husband's part, but thanks to Melita, it's one that doesn't happen to most people. This is Susan, and this is the story of Melita Bentz. Melita, what a pretty name, and hipster parents, it's perfectly poised for a resurgence. Not only is it pretty different and melodic, but it's the original Greek form of Melissa, and for those who like their offspring names to be historically meaningful and personal... Melita Bentz invented the modern coffee filter. We can thank her for unlumping most people's coffee. Amelia Auguste Melita Liebscher was born on January 31, 1873 in Dresden, Germany. Her father was a book publisher, or some say a bookstore owner, and her grandparents owned a brewery. At the time of Melita's childhood, it was known as the Florence of the Elbe River. It was a beautiful city, old, gorgeous architecture and art. It attracted painters, artists, writers, philosophers, and porcelain decorators. That's where you've heard the word before, Dresden porcelain. It refers to a style of painting and decorating the porcelain. There really weren't any porcelain manufacturing companies in Dresden, but the decorating studios were prolific. I'm sure you'd recognize it if you saw it. It's pretty urns and vases and figurines that have a delicate lace-like appearance to them. It was actually lace dipped into the porcelain. They're marked on the bottom with a little blue crown that says Dresden. Anyway, back to Melita. Melita married Johann Emil Hugo Benz. He would set off to work each day as a department store manager, and Melita stayed home as a homemaker. She was a mom to two sons, Willie and Horst. At the beginning of the 1900s, coffee was a global beverage. Coffee beans were originally found in Africa, where they were ground and rolled into paste with animal fat and eaten, like little energy bombs. Ethiopians later took the berries and fermented them into wine. (laughs) That sounds too good to be true. Coffee and wine together. Two, two, two drinks in one. Across the Red Sea from Africa is the Arabian Peninsula. There, beans also grew, and when in the 11th century, coffee was first made into a hot drink. The word legend or myth often accompanies the beginning of this coffee discovery story. A goat herder saw that his herd had become more lively when they ate the fruit of a certain bush. He tasted the fruit, liked the kick, danced with his goats, and was spotted by some monks who wanted in on the mysterious berries. 
These monks, according to the story, began boiling them and using the resulting beverage to keep them awake during night-long religious rituals. By the time the Betts family in Dresden was making their morning cup, coffee was a globally addicted beverage, and mostly it was a big business. During Melita's life, one of the most common ways to make coffee was with a newfangled invention called a percolator, patented in 1889. We've all seen them. They're still in use today. You put the water in the bottom of the pot. Inside the pot is a metal tube that goes up to a porcelain or a metal basket where you put the coffee grounds. You put the lid on it, put it on the burner, and when it boils, the water goes up the tube, down over the coffee grounds, and creates coffee. The problem with a percolator was it often overbrewed the beverage, and which made it really bitter. And sometimes it took so long to make that by the time it was done, the coffee was cold. The other popular method involved pouring hot water over a linen bag that held the ground beans. It made pretty good coffee, but the problem was that the bag needed to be washed frequently. And when you did get a new bag, it was very slow to let the, the beverage drip through it. Now, both methods left one huge problem, lumpy coffee. There were grounds left in the bottom of the cup, so that meant there were black dots on Melita's teeth, little bits sticking to her gums. It was kind of a problem. And in a modern city like Dresden, surely someone could come up with a new way. That someone? was Melita Bentz. One day, fed up with those coffee grounds and lumpy coffee, she poked holes into the bottom of a coffee pot. Then she took a piece of blotting paper, you know, that thick absorbent paper that was used to absorb excess ink from dip pens or early ink pens. She cut a circle to fit inside the pot, put the grounds in it, put a cup underneath it, poured boiling water over the whole thing, and the result? on lumpy coffee. It wasn't bitter. It was still hot. And best of all, there was nothing in her teeth. She quickly got herself to Berlin and filed the paperwork for a patent and was granted one on June 20th, 1908. Her invention was called <clears throat> filter top device lined with filter paper. Six months later, she and Hugo registered their business and began production in a room in their apartment. They contracted with a local tinsmith to make the pots and made the paper filters themselves at home. I'll put a picture of the early coffee pots that Malia. It's not doesn't really look anything like the coffee pots we use now. It looks more like maybe like a camp pot. It's smaller. And well, I'll just put the picture up and you'll see. Soon, Hugo left his job at the department store to work on marketing. He did it like a lot of businesses now by demonstrating the product in, in the stores. He'd go into the store windows and make coffee. Eventually, he outsourced that job to some women who did exactly the same thing. Now at home, Melita had a different strategy. She was having home coffee parties to help get the word out. That sounds really familiar as I sit looking at a whole bunch of invites to candle and scents and dishware parties. A lot like Lillian Gilbreth, while she was working to get the company off the ground, Melita gave birth to another child, a daughter named Herta. The business soon outgrew the apartment room, then a couple other locations. But in 1914, World War I broke out. Hugo was drafted into the army. Paper and metals were rationed and used for the war effort and coffee imports were banned. All of this ground business to a halt. Once the war was over, the Bentz family got back to business and the expansion was fairly quick. Soon the name was registered as Bentz and Son. And Melita backed off a bit from the business, but kept her hand in enough to make sure that her sons were treating their ever-growing number of employees fairly. 
She made sure that vacations were introduced, that the work week was limited to five days, and competitive salaries were given all around. And in a very unique for the times move, they created an aid fund for their employees. Melita and Hugo retired in 1932, and Willie and Horst expanded the company. Those cone-shaped filters that we know of as Melita filters now, those were not even invented until 1937. There was a 12-year slowdown in production during World War II, and they kind of limped their business through the war with makeshift production facilities. But after the war ended, they got right back into business. And again, expansion was fairly quick. It was a good business. In 1946, Hugo died, and Melita followed him on June 29, 1950, leaving her legacy to coffee drinkers worldwide and a very excellent baby name. It's time. It's time for you to find your perfect fitting bra. And Third Love has the tools to help you do just that. I did about hmm, three years ago and I haven't gone back. All my okay bras, they got shoved to the back of the drawer and the Third Love ones are in the place of honor. Yeah, it was convenient. I skipped that awkward trip to the store. I took Third Love's online fit finder quiz. I ordered, I tried it on at home and then I started ordering more. But you know what? One of the bras that I ordered, I didn't really care for. So I sent it back. There's a 100% guarantee. No questions asked. Earlier this year, Third Love introduced new sizes. Now they have one of the largest ranges in the industry, and there's no price hike for those larger sizes. But you know what they do have? They've got premium touches that ensure that the bra is strongest where you need it most. Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone. So right now they're offering our listeners 15% off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com slash chicks now to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your first purchase. That's Third Love. Spell it out. T-H-I-R-D-L-O-V-E dot com slash chicks for 15% off today. Chapter 3. The Bra. Necessity is the mother of invention. That's the classic sentiment, but sometimes you need an able assist from vanity. This is the story of Mary Phelps Jacobs, born on April 20, 1891. She was the oldest child and only daughter of the three children of William Hearn Jacob and Mary Phelps. Papa and Mama were both descended from old New England families. They were the right people, with a capital R and a capital P. I mean, seventh generation here. Even though Mary always insisted that her family was, quote, not rich, they had multiple houses, horses, sailboats, and any wish of the daughter of the house was fulfilled. I had everything I ever wanted, she said. So maybe compared to some of her parents' friends, she felt a little underprivileged, but to everyone else on the earth looking in, this was a dream of a childhood. Since our Mary had the exact same name as her mother, to friends and family she was always known as Polly. A surprisingly common nickname for Mary, as I'm finding. She went to Miss Chapin's school in New York City, a very exclusive establishment that still, I think, costs $35,000 a year, if you have it. Papa died when Polly was 17, and she went off to boarding school in Connecticut at Rosemary Hall, where she was simply known as Jacob, because at Rosemary Hall, like Hogwarts, everyone was called by their last name. And where, in 1910, after the headmistress had had lunch with the wife of the founder of the Boy Scouts, Lady Baden-Powell herself is supposed to have made Polly Jacob America's very first Girl Scout. How's that for something I didn't know before I began research? She graduated at 19, and girls at Rosemary Hall had to pass the Bryn Mawr entrance exam in order to graduate, so that's no mean feat. Um, She has some brain there. And then it was time for the season. Polly came out herself, of course, and then it was nonstop. 
balls and Ivy League dances up till the wee hours and sleeping until noon to start all over again. And it was at 19 that the inventor's thunderbolt struck. Polly was dressing for yet another dance, and this time, a wardrobe malfunction annoyed her so badly that she felt she had to do something. Her corset, you've seen Kate Winslet's in Titanic, her long, squeezy, uncomfortable underwear was visible through the sheer fabric of her expensive dress. And the corset cover actually showed at the top. Not acceptable. So Polly and her lady's maid contrived a solution for this fashion disaster using two handkerchiefs, some stout cording... This was a proto-underwire, I've seen photos of Polly, and um, probably a necessary attribute, and uh, also some ribbon. They made an undergarment that was supportive but not restrictive and didn't ruin the line of her dress. Hooray! Now, someone more concerned with the proprieties probably would not have dared to do it, but when you're brought up to believe you can do no wrong, it gives you a certain amount of confidence. And so, off she went to the dance. And the ladies crowded her to find out what on earth she had on that let her move like that. And no monoboob, although I don't think they use that word, but a natural form, should I say. You know, make me one, make me one, they said. Note to listeners, when the friends clamor for something you make, there's probably gold in them thar hills. It was when she got a request from a complete stranger offering her a dollar for her contraption that she thought she'd better move on this. And she received a patent for the backless brassiere in November of 1914. My favorite part of the application is, it may be worn by persons engaged in violent exercise like tennis. Now, there were earlier competitors, of course. Even as early as the Civil War, there'd been bra-like garments for sale. Some designs for bras were even being mass-produced. Yet her design was suitable for all sizes and allowed the wearer to wear plunging necklines and backless dresses, and she was very much ahead of the fashion here. At 20, the year after her major invention, Polly married Dick Peabody, a man from an even more old money family than hers, socially acceptable and very well-educated, but sort of cold, to her anyway. They had two children, William and Pauline, which means little Polly, and when war broke out, Dick sort of gratefully went to the war, where he pretty much lived the life of a single man about town. Polly filed a document with the state of Massachusetts that stated she was a married woman starting a business with her own, not her husband's, money and began the fashion form Brazier Company in Boston. She had to let the authorities in on that fact. Just let that sink in. Otherwise, I think he might have been able to sell it out from under her. Oh, how far we've come. After the war, Dick had a giant drinking problem. Curiously, also had a bell installed in their house that was connected to the local fire department so he could be alerted um, and watch fires burn by following the fire department out there. Super eccentric. When Polly was asked at 28 to chaperone a group of young people on a picnic, she fell in love, or was it hmm, violent attraction, let's just say, to a 22-year-old member of the party named Harry Crosby. They began an affair, and society was appalled. Uh, Harry, at one point, said, I'll kill myself if you can't marry me. Oh, that should be a red flag right there, girl. But whatever. It took two more years, but Polly was allowed to divorce Dick at last, and she married Harry Crosby just as soon as the bare minimum of propriety had been achieved, about six months. Now, Harry had a trust fund of about $165,000 a year and really hated the thought of his wife being in business. That's 
yucky. I don't like it. It's gross. It's low. And he convinced her to shut down the fashion form brassiere company, and she sold her patent for a pittance to the Warner Brothers corset company. And eventually, those Warner Brothers, Warner, you know, still a company, would make 15 or so million dollars off the patent that they paid her only $1,500 for. And really, that is where the inventor part of her story ends. But I would love to give you some highlights of the rest of this roller coaster of a life. And honestly, some of this might be uncomfortable to explain to children. So if you have to skip ahead to chapter four, I completely understand. Words, concepts, follow, etc. You've been warned. Uh, give it about six minutes. Here we go. Harry convinced her to change her name to Caress. Uh, he wanted her to change it to Clitoris. So... That's the least of two alarming choices. They eventually ended up naming a dog Clitoris and told their small daughter that um, it was a Greek goddess. <laughs> they didn't want to explain it either. And Harry and Caress Crosby had a famously open marriage. They moved to Europe and became enmeshed in the art scene in Paris with all the wild behavior, drug-taking, and eccentricity you can think of. Being carried naked around a party on a giant platter might have been the mildest thing that happened. <laughs> They um, decided among them that they would commit suicide together in 1942. It's when the Earth was going to be closest to the sun. And so they're going to go through all their money ahead of time and make sure to get down to zero by then and set about doing it. Um, couture clothes, horse racing, gambling, buying of castles, spending of money wantonly. Caress wrote some books of poetry. The first one's decidedly, you know... Rhyming Love with Dove, decidedly mediocre. Houghton Mifflin published them, but ultimately, Harry and Caress decided to begin their own publishing company. Editions Narcisse, which they later changed to Black Sun Publishing, uh, was ahead of the fashion here, too. They printed works by the likes of Hemingway, James Joyce, Ezra Pound, Lawrence Stern, Archibald MacLeish, in anticipation of their future fame. Now, in 1929, Harry died in a suicide pact, but with his lover Josephine, not Caress, who went back to the name Mary, understandably, and back to publishing, where she put her money behind paperback books long before they were common. Most books were treasures to be treated with respect. So who, who would buy these kind of books? People just didn't believe in them. Not yet. She's ahead of her time. Mary had a hard time getting stores to carry them. What else? She wrote pornography for a client of Henry Miller's very successfully, according to the customer. She scandalized America with her open affair with the African-American actor Canada Lee. She married an attractive ne'er-do-well, 18 years younger than she, who crashed her car, spent her money, and sometimes just disappeared. She's just not a good picker of husbands. She hung out with the likes of Salvador Dali and Buckminster Fuller, Anais Nen, and the aforementioned Henry Miller. She divorced the young one and moved to Washington, D.C., where she opened an art gallery. She published a quarterly magazine that was literally a who's who of avant-garde writers and artists, and bought a castle near Rome in which she planned to create an artist colony and writer's retreat. Toward the end of her life, Mary was asked about the invention of the bra, and she said, well, it's not as important to the world as, say, the steamboat. But yes, that was mine. Now, watch... Do watch episode 311 of Drunk History. Makes a great point about this. You know, how many of you own a steamboat? Hmm. Mary died on January 24th, 1970 at age 78. And Time magazine lauded her as, quote, the literary godmother to the lost generation of writers in Paris. So the bra and literary godmother, those are two pretty great legacies. 
For more specifics on her life, I recommend that you read the autobiography that she wrote called The Passionate Years. So thanks for the bra, Mary Phelps Jacob, and thanks for Hemingway, too. Chapter 4, Wi-Fi and GPS, at least an integral part of them. What do you call a woman who seems to have it all? She's beautiful, brainy, accomplished, staring, sexy, and self-confident. How about Hedy Lamar? Hedvig Eva Maria Kiesler was born on November 9, 1914, in Vienna, Austria. She was the first and only child of successful banker Emil and his concert pianist wife, Gertrude, who went by Trudy. Hetty's childhood was exactly what you would imagine as an only-in-love child of wealthy parents. She didn't lack for anything. She traveled with her parents all over Europe. They got her tutors beginning at age four. She was remarkably bright and learned several languages in ballet. Her mother taught her the piano, and later she attended private girls' school. Her father adored her. It's simple as that. He would take her for walks and tell her stories. He'd read her fairy tales, and when Hetty asked him how things work... He would tell her, streetcars, printing presses, whatever it was, if she asked, he would tell her how it worked, and he didn't dumb it down either. She was fascinated by these conversations. Now, if Papa was a softie who overindulged his daughter, Mama had a bit more of a stricter hand. She was worried that Hetty would become spoiled and, by her own admission, underemphasized praise and flattery, hoping to balance out her husband's adoration. It should probably be noted that the Kiesler family was Jewish. In pre-World War II Vienna, it wasn't a big deal, but Hetty did actually keep it a secret for most of her life. So what's a young girl who has a stage set up under her father's desk, who acts out fairy tales with her dolls, and who begins to mime people around her to do? Hetty had always imagined herself as an actress and took every opportunity to pursue it, a lot of them behind her parents' back. As young ladies from wealthy families are wont to do, Hetty was sent to a Swiss finishing school, which she promptly ran away from and went home to Vienna. She headed straight for the city's largest movie studio and talked herself into a job as a script girl. Was it her looks or her self-confidence? It certainly wasn't her experience because she didn't have any. But once inside the studio, she quickly auditioned for a part in a movie, a minor part, but she got it script girl to actress in one day. Of course, the next task ahead of her was to tell her parents that this was her dream and she's about to make it come true. But how do you tell your parents that? Hey, mom, dad, I know I'm 16 and I know I'm dropping out of school to become an actress, but that's okay, right? Over time, she gave slightly conflicting accounts of how tough a sell it was, but it all came down to the same result. How could her parents deny their princess her dream? They knew she loved acting, and she was only 16. Maybe it's something she would drop. Nope. Her first $5 bit part led to another bigger role and another. She was quickly labeled as the most beautiful girl in the world. She acted in some plays, but movies was where she wanted to be, and stardom was her goal. She seemed to be on her way and was even being noticed by people far outside of Austria or even Europe. The New York Times mentioned her in a review of a movie that she was in. At 17, she was offered a career-changing part, a lead role in a Czech film named Ecstasy. Yes, it was a love story. She was still a minor, but cast in the role of Eve, a woman in a stifling marriage who has an affair. 
Ecstasy premiered in 1933. Hetty was 18 by the time, but the film showed her 17-year-old self not only swimming nude, but running naked through the woods after her horse and being discovered by a man who hands her a really cute jumpsuit, which she puts on. And later in the film, she and he have a very artistically shot love scene. It was the first time that a woman had reached that level of happiness in a movie. It was, like I said, artistically filmed, but it caused quite a scandal. As soon as her parents saw the finished film, she realized it was probably not her best move. She claims to have told her father something like, teenagers often do crazy, stupid things to look more experienced than they are. My dad saw me kissing a boyfriend once, and I was mortified and embarrassed. I can only imagine the hurt that was in Hetty's father's eyes. But rather than hide out from scandal and drop from acting, Hetty continued to act. Her first role after that was a play, and Hetty got back on track as a serious actor. It also brought the attention of a Fritz Mendel. Fritz was 33, not tall, heavy. I would say doughy would be a good way to describe him. But what did he have going for him? He was the third richest man in Austria. His money was made from arms manufacturing, but he was known as a womanizer and had already divorced once. He was also known as a ruthless businessman. But I guess when you're dealing weapons to the Nazis, you have to be. Hetty was at first not impressed. So Fritz went on the attack. He weaseled an invitation to dinner from her mother. Then that night, Hetty was rude to him, which, of course, only got him going even more, and he began a full-on courtship assault. Fritz tried the wine-and-dine approach, but no go. Then he began to appeal to Hetty's intellectual side. He showed her that he was a strong man in business. He showed her that he had a charming side. And he showed her that he had brains. That was about all it took. Hetty was in love, and Fritz had his trophy wife. The honeymoon was over pretty quickly, but by then it was too late. 19-year-old Hetty was forbidden to act. Fritz was going around scooping up as many copies of ecstasy as he could get his hands on and destroying them. She was a bird in a gilded cage. A cage that looked like a city house, three hunting lodges, and a yacht. But she was guarded all the time and pretty much treated like the doll Fritz thought she was. She called that time her prison of gold. Part of her new life required her to sit at dinner parties and look pretty. But she was still the intelligent woman who liked to know how things worked. So she would sit, appearing to be bored, while talk of weapons and submarines and missiles and radio frequencies was going on around her. She listened to everything. And she also kept her eye open for a way to escape her suffocating marriage. Hetty told quite a few versions of her escape story, and every single one of them sounds like a movie plot. The one you hear a lot is that she drugged a maid, stole her uniform, escaped to Paris with only the clothes on her back, filed for divorce, then went on to London, and then the United States. The truth probably was a little less tame, but still movie plot-like. It involved an affair with an author who was maybe mentoring her and how to reclaim her life. Um, it involved a sly appeal to one of Fritz's closest friends that, as she knew, would become newspaper fodder. And it led to several fights with Fritz, but it also led to her side of the story being out in public. Finally, a perfectly timed hunting trip on Fritz's part gave her the opportunity she needed. She packed as many of her clothes and jewels as she could into several pieces of luggage and left for London, far from escaping in the middle of the night with only the clothes on her back. 
in London. She met, of course, because this is Hedy Lamarr and these things seem to have worked out for her quite a bit, Louis B. Mayer of MGM Studios. He offered her a contract fairly quickly, which didn't quite meet with what Hedy expected. So she rejected it, even though Hollywood and a contract with MGM was exactly what she was working towards. So she kept working. She managed to book herself on the same ship that was bringing Mayer and his wife back to the United States. And in true Hollywood fashion, our smart, bold and clever heroine landed in New York with a contract. She got the deal she wanted, although one of the conditions was that she changed her last name from Kiesler. German was kind of difficult to say, and Germany wasn't exactly a favored nation with a lot of Americans. She was divorcing Mandel, so that last name was out. Mayer liked the name of a recently deceased actress who he was quite fond of, Barbara Lamar. So Hedy Lamar she became. It was October of 1937, and she was in Hollywood learning English by watching movies. Within a year, she was making movies of her own, and her first, just as she would have planned it, was a movie that made her a star. Women began to copy her look. They dyed their hair dark. They parted it in the middle. It was long and wavy. Men were very attracted to her looks as well. She worked on quite a few movies and by 1944 was beginning to be bored of playing the same glamorous role in various movies with the biggest movie stars of the time. Tracy, Gable, Stewart, Powell. I know, the world's smallest violin heady, right? But she wanted to be offered serious acting parts that she wasn't being offered. Everything seemed to be focused on her beauty. About this time, she met her second husband, Jean Markey, and married him. They adopted a baby boy named James. Jean was charming, but the two had very separate lives and they were always busy. The marriage only lasted two years. But that's okay, because four years after that, she married British actor John Loder. By this point in time, the U.S. had entered World War II. Hetty was horrified, as were many people, by the German submarine attacks, especially one on a boat that was carrying British children to Canada for safety. Now, unlike a lot of stars, Hetty liked to stay home. No partying for her. She had a drawing board at her house, and she liked to invent things. She didn't have anything that worked yet. <laughs> Some bouillon-style cubes that you dropped into water and they became soda. She made improvements to Kleenex boxes and traffic lights, but nothing that actually worked. But still, trying to solve these problems was a characteristic that she had. And the question, how to stop the submarines, ignited that characteristic. While she was mulling this over, she did what many stars of the time were doing and helping out in the war effort by selling war bonds and by entertaining the troops. She was very good at selling war bonds and one night set a record by selling $7 million worth of them. Hetty met musician George Antile. He was known as the bad boy of music. And in addition to composing music and writing movie scores, he was kind of an expert on player pianos. Um, some of his pieces had numerous player pianos that were working together to create the composition. She and I and Tile began to talk about the war and how to help, specifically how to stop the torpedoes. Now, Hetty had retained a lot of information that she picked up in her Mandel days. What was happening was that the Germans were figuring out what radio signal the boats and or the airplanes were firing the torpedoes from, and they were jamming that frequency. What, the two decided, if the plane and the torpedoes worked in unison, kind of like George's player pianos, and what if while they were working in unison, they skipped from one radio frequency to the next, so that it would be impossible for the Germans to know what frequency they were on, impossible then to jam it, and the torpedoes would hit more of their targets. 
Through much trial and error and quite a few unworkable plans, the two finally came upon a solution, and in June of 1941, they filed for a patent for a machine called the Secret Communication System. In 1942, they received that patent. They sent their plans to the Navy, but bureaucracy is a long process, and by the time the plans passed to the real decision makers, the U.S. was deep into World War II. Mid-fighting was no time to be developing new technology for guided torpedoes when they were already stocked and trained with unguided ones that worked some of the time. There also seemed to be some confusion about the size of the control device. The Navy somehow got it in their heads that it was too bulky to fit into a torpedo. But in truth, the mechanism wasn't much bigger than a matchbox. Hetty and George gave, not sold, their plans to the Defense Department and went on with their lives. The technology that they developed would be used by the military, but not until 1962, after their patent had expired. Hetty had another child, a son with Loder, but mid-pregnancy, she filed for divorce. She got custody of the children, and between 1951 and 1965, she was married and divorced three more times. George died of a heart attack in 1959 at the age of 58. The last of Hetty's over 30 movies was made in 1958. Then she kind of hopped a train for Eccentric Town. She lived a while as a result of several lawsuits that she brought when she felt that her name or image was being exploited. She had several unsuccessful plastic surgeries that made her very reclusive. She spent most of her time uh, at her home in Florida talking on the phone if she was communicating with anyone. She was finally recognized for her technological contributions in 1997, 56 years after her invention. What did she say? It's about time. Her health and eyesight continued to deteriorate. And on January 19th, 2000, 85-year-old Hedy Lamar died in her sleep. The theories behind her frequency hopping technology, however, are now used. They control satellites. They operate cell phones. They run Wi-Fi. They run our GPS. All these things that are backbones to our modern society. These things that bring me to you today. So thank you so much for that, Hetty. As far as media goes, um, I, there are two books that I would recommend. The first is Hetty's Folly, The Life and Breakthrough Inventions of Hetty Lamar, The Most Beautiful Woman in the World by Richard Rode. Uh, it's a pretty fast read. It was very well written. The second I would re- recommend is for kids. It's Hetty Lamar and the Secret Communication System by Trina Robbins, illustrated by Cynthia Martin. It is a graphic nonfiction. So if you like graphic novels, like I do, you might really like this one too, or at least your kids will. Now, there is an autobiography that was ghostwritten called Ecstasy and Me, My Life as a Woman, read it because it would be in um, as close to her voice as you could probably get. However, bear in mind that it's gone through the filter of her. uh, So the facts might be a little skewed, but as a read, you might really enjoy it. Websites, there is hedylamar.org. We'll link you up on our show notes. It's got a plethora of information and pictures and links to even more about the life of Hedy Lamar, who was known in her lifetime for her beauty. But now we go even deeper and remember her for her intelligence.
podcast is an accompaniment to episode 37, The Wizard of Oz. It covers three of the major stars of the 1939 MGM movie, The Wizard of Oz. And let's start with the biggie, Judy Garland. I will tell you, it is hard to be this compact with Judy Garland, but here we go. <laughs> Judy was born as Frances Ethel Gum in 1922 to two vaudevillians. Ethel and Frances. Her parents owned a theater in Grand Rapids, Minnesota. Not exactly the place you'd expect a star to come from. But there was a huge scandal where Papa was accused of being <clears throat> forward with some male employees. And the family had to move. Uh, Papa found another theater for sale far, far away in Lancaster, California, which is just outside of Los Angeles. Judy and her two sisters, Susie and Jimmy, which was short for Virginia, were an act. They were the Gum Sisters. And Mama Gum, natural stage mother that she was... And here they are, so close to Hollywood, started the machine, you know. They were in an area where a lot of education for dance and singing and performing was available to them, so she put them in classes. And Baby Gum, as she was known, that's just a lovely name, was in her first movie at seven. The Gum Sisters, soon to change to the Garland Sisters, which is much lovelier, uh, were in more movies and big vaudeville shows until Sister Susie broke up the act in 1935 by eloping with a musician. Shades of Gypsy Rose Lee. Yes, she did. But not long after that, Judy became a solo act, and at 13, she signed with MGM. But at 13, you know, she's not really a child actress, mm-hmm. although she's as small as a child at 4 foot 11. But she's not, you know, a glamorous leading lady. They kind of had a problem placing her, but at least they had her under contract so no one else could take her away. She had a girl-next-door image that created for her, which worked great when they paired her with Andy Rooney who was also not a very tall person, but he was adorable at the time. He was like the Justin Bieber of the day. Yeah. And they did eight movies together. Andy Hardy movies as was their, was their shtick, the thing that they did. But they were just making her work so hard. She was on a tight movie-making schedule. She was working a lot, but she was also growing. And she wasn't growing up as much as she was growing out. You know how kids during adolescence kind of plump up a little bit? Well, they called her fat at that point. And they put her on amphetamines to help not only give her enough energy to get through her schedule, but to try and bring her weight down. I mean, hello, she went to school. With Lana Turner, mm-hmm. Elizabeth Taylor, Ava Gardner. You thought the prom queen at your high school was intimidating. To be constantly criticized that way, no matter what she did, I think after that, she never really felt that sure of herself. No. Well, I mean, when Louis Mayer, the head of the theater, is calling you the little hunchback, and the, she has to wear caps on her teeth and rubber discs on her nose to change the shape of her. I mean, how do you ever have a good self-image if you have that during your formative years? It's not even possible. So she's on speed to get her through the day, and she's on sleeping pills to get her through the night, and she's not even 16 years old yet. Um, so at 16, she was cast in The Wizard of Oz. The first director had her in a blonde wig, which I'm sure looked great. We had said earlier that Shirley Temple almost got cast for this part. Mm-hmm. I still think, sorry, 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 I no. still think this was a spectacular bit of miscasting. I'm sorry. But they did have her in a flattening corset to hide her curves, tight and flat like a stomacher. From Marie Antoinette's time. Look at her abdomen. It never changes shape. It's stiff. They had her in the gingham 
because it kind of hit her curves a little bit. Mm-hmm. The kind of dresses that they were putting her in at the time were just baby doll dresses. And this is a teenage girl who's wise to life. And they're putting her in these puffy sleeves and pinafores. And I'm just like, why not just cast a child? Mm. I don't understand. It. <laughs> well, you weren't alone. You're not alone in that. I mean. Well, that year she won a juvenile award, which was like a baby Oscar. It was actually shorter. She later called it her munchkin award. <laughs> <laughs> but she won it for both Wizard of Oz and Babes in Arms. Um, it's for like a year, like a good performance over the past year right. kind of thing. She never actually won another Oscar, no. interestingly, though she was nominated. Nope. By 19, she was married. Her first marriage at 19 to band leader David Rose lasted about three years. But during that time, she met Vincent Minnelli, who was directing her in Meet Me in St. Louis. I love that movie. I will tell you, I think that's the only Judy Garland movie I like. Really? And I really love it. I just really do. I think it's so cute. She's saying, have yourself a merry little Christmas in that movie, and that's where it came from. Mm-hmm. We all think of it as, a, oh, it's just on the Christmas channel. It's on yeah, the series. Right. No, that, this is where it came yeah. from. Judy Garland was the first one. I love it. So right after that movie, though, right after Meet Me in St. Louis, she suffered a nervous breakdown, several suicide attempts, and visits to sanatoriums, Shades of Clara Bow. Big time. And overwork. She was literally replaced during filming three separate times. Well, she was getting known as being unreliable with, I mean, the drug use that she was undergoing, which was forced upon her, and eventually she was dropped by MGM. So she is not even 30. She's had two divorces, one child, frequent sanitarium visits. It's a dark, dark few years. Um, At 29, though, she was the comeback kid a little bit. She was in a Oscar-nominated movie called A Star is Born. She had concert tours, TV specials, Vegas engagements. These are the years that we know her from recording artist years, really. Mm -hmm. Uh, Judy at Carnegie Hall went gold and won two Grammys. At this point, she goes on to her third marriage to producer Sid Luft. She has two more children, Lorna and Joey. So now she's the mom of three, living this chaotic, I mean, (laughs) um, Josephine Baker almost lifestyle. At 42, we're just whipping through this. She was on a serious downward spiral. She owed hundreds of thousands of dollars to the IRS. She was in poor health, um, having had an attack of pleurisy. She was diagnosed with hepatitis. She had... Alcohol and substance issues and cirrhosis of the liver, uh, you know, she was falling apart. And again, shades of her past replaced in a major project, Valley of the Dolls. She was replaced by Susan Hayward. The only good thing about this time, I think, is that she got her star on the Walk of Fame. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, That's pretty much it. I know. She was going through a bitter custody battle in her divorce. What a dark life this woman was leading. There was a very troubled end game. Um, is, I guess, what I should say about yeah. that. She was found by husband number five, husband of three months, by the yeah. way, passed away from an accidental, the coroner stressed accidental because of her history, I think, mm-hmm. uh, overdose. You know, like what your body would get a tolerance to it. So it wasn't like she sat in there and thought, oh, I'm going to take this whole bottle and end it all. It was more like she had passed the threshold at which her body could process right. the stuff. Uh, she was only 47. 47. That's just amazing to me. I would not. I mean, I knew she died early, but I didn't realize it was that. that well, early. you look back at film footage of her and she looked so much older. The hard life she lived, but she went through five marriages, had three children. 
She died on June 22nd, 1969 in London, and she's buried in New York. Most of us honestly know her mainly as Dorothy, I have mm-hmm. to say. Most of us, if we're not followers of her career, right? I would say that's the movie that she is um, known for. Her rendition of Over the Rainbow is the number one movie song of all time. There is a movie coming out later this year or... Last year, depending on when you're listening to this podcast, <laughs> called Get Happy, The Life of Judy Garland, starring Anne Hathaway. Which is good casting. I really think, for the first time, I'm going to say Anne Hathaway has been cast properly. Except for the height issue. Yeah. Otherwise, good. Hooray. Yep. That works for me. So there is a very encapsulated Judy Garland. We never thought know. we could pull that off. I know. That was good. Good job. And now we move on to Glinda the Good Witch, Billy Burke. Billy Burke was born August 7th, 1884 in Washington, D.C. 1884, it seems so long ago. Her name, her official name, Mary William Ethelbert Appleton Burke. She was the daughter of the famed circus clown Billy with a Y, Burke, um, and basically grew up on tour. Uh, unlike most papas of the day. Hers didn't object when she began acting in plays at 18. Now, the family had settled in London, and she made her stage debut there and then moved quickly on to Broadway by the age of 22, where she played the lead on a lot of shows. Ten years later, she's off to Hollywood to star in films, which she did, and also she kept acting in between on the stage until she met Florence Ziegfeld. Now, if that name sounds familiar, we just talked about him. And we talked about her, too, in the Josephine Baker podcast. So there she is, sort of set for life, really. Money grew on trees. So she had one daughter, Patricia. Let's leave all that behind and live graciously. Until one day. In 1929, something really bad happened in our economy, and the market crashed, and the Ziegfelds lost everything. Along with so many other people. Mm-hmm. So, uh, America was tossed into the Great Depression. Um, the showboat revival that, that Ziegfeld had helped a little bit. Well, helped a lot. But she came off the bench. The world had kind of changed with talkies. And so she was filming her first one, which was called A Bill of Divorcement, when her husband suddenly died. And so now, this film career was for real. She had a small child to support. She did, and she got into a lot of roles. She was a comedy actress. She did musicals. She did dramas. Over the course of her lifetime, she did more than 80 movies. She was a bit typecast, though, I have to say, as a flighty, dim-witted society type. She's either doomed or blessed by her voice, (laughs) which was just that voice. Hey, it put food on the table. That's true. Um, In fact, she was in Topper, which I love. The movies, not the TV shows. She was in the movies. Um, It's about a man with two ghosts that only he can see, and she played his wife. You can't see any man. It's Cary Grant. (laughs) And then in 1938, at the age of 54, she was cast to play Glinda in The Wizard of Oz. She's 54. Think about Judy Garland, which she looked like at 47. And now think of Glinda. I mean, what is, what's the answer? Is it genes? Is it upbringing? Is it good, clean-ish living? Working out? Love? Oh, could be. You know, I don't know, but whatever it is, she really looked awesome. <laughs> now, there is a little bit of a connection here. Also, Ray Bolger, Mr. Scarecrow, got his start in the Ziegfeld Follies. It's like, oh, hello, you, again. And as a matter of fact, Billy Burke, after franchising the name for a couple of seasons, actually was a producer um, for many years after that and was a producer the year 
that Josephine Baker did so badly in the Follies, by the way. Uh huh. So I'm not sure she thought well of Josephine Baker having not earned her proper amounts of money. So Billy went on to do more movies. She did a radio show. She did a television show. She did plays. At one point though, her memory was getting a little fuzzy and she was getting older and she said acting just wasn't fun anymore. But really, it was time for her to retire. Her last movie was a John Ford Western, which is not the, what we think of her as at all, called Sergeant Rutledge in 1960. And she died at the age of 85 on May 14th, 1970. That's a long, prolific career. It is. It's a long career with a lot of stage makeup. But I, what a, the quotes that she says just cracks me up. A woman past 40 should make up her mind to be young, not her face. Maybe that's the secret to how maybe. she looked so awesome in, as Glenda. And she maybe she didn't even think about it because she also said age is of no importance unless you're a cheese. <laughs> well, all right for her. I know. I loved her. And so that's Billy Burke, Glinda the Good Witch. <laughs> and now, on to my personal favorite, Margaret Hamilton, also known as the Wicked Witch of the West. Margaret Hamilton was born on December 9th, 1902 in Cleveland, Ohio. I think it's interesting. She's younger than Billy Burke was. Almost 20 years younger. That's a, that's a remarkable. Her birth name was Margaret Brainerd Hamilton, but they called her Maggie. She went to an all-girls school. She was the youngest of four children. Her parents insisted that she go to college, although she wanted to go to the stage. Yeah, her papa did not approve of the stage. I think it's funny that her very first role in anything was as an old man, which made him even madder. (laughs) Um, What was an all-girls school? She didn't have a choice. Somebody had to be the man. Her first job was as a kindergarten teacher. She loved children. Ironically, after this movie, children were either deathly afraid of her or asked her why she was so mean to Dorothy. So that's sad. She was married for seven years. And had one son named Hamilton, who's still with us. But the parents divorced, leaving her as the sole breadwinner, again, just like Billy Burke. She got a call from her agent one day. They want you for Wizard of Oz. And she was like, that has been my favorite book since I was four. She's exactly the right age to have read that. Mm-hmm. Kind of oh, as it was coming out. As we discussed before, those books were very, very, very famous. And it would be like being called out of the blue to star in a Harry Potter movie. Yep. She was so excited. What part? What part? And he's like, um, the Wicked Witch of the West. Of course. <laughs> she was a little deflated, but still excited. <laughs> but she was a character actress. I mean, that was not. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what else she thought she could possibly have played. And any interviews that I saw with her, she kind of laughed that off. But of course, that was it. She demanded a thousand dollars a week. And they said that she would have six weeks work. And, you know, in today's money, that's $16,000 a week. So good negotiating. I think so. And she was actually, as a businesswoman, she didn't sign with a studio. She wanted to keep her options open as a character actress so she could bounce between the studios, which was pretty smart. She said that the filming was, quote, not as jolly as you would think. She actually called it, you know, much later, when she was free of it, an imprisonment. She like many other of the cast members, were literally confined in their costumes. Her makeup was made from copper and so poisonous, absolutely not to be ingested. So she was confined to a liquid diet for the entirety of filming, which when it's six weeks, you're like, ah, but when it's 23 weeks, holy moly. As a matter of fact, the Tin Man was poisoned by his makeup 
Um, the second one couldn't sit down the entirety of filming and had to lean against a board, all pitiful and sad, also drinking out of a straw. The poor old lion, he was supposed to be on a liquid diet, by the way, too. And he basically is like, you know what? Screw it. Redo my makeup. I'm eating lunch. <laughs> and so he got out of it, but no one else was that brave. He, though, had a 90-pound real lion skin to wear every day. So you remember that when they're watching the movie and you see the antics that the lion is doing, what he's hauling around, 90 pounds. Also, by the end of the day, it was soaking wet, so I can't imagine how many more pounds. And it reeked like the demons full of brimstone. It was bad, and there were two people employed to do nothing but dry that crap out every night. That's what their job was. They put it through ringers and had fans on it. I hope they got danger pay, because that is foul. (laughs) Back to Margaret Hamilton, though. There was a bad incident. There was. She had copper in her makeup, and... Not only, like you said, couldn't it be ingested, but it couldn't catch on fire. There's a special effects incident, and her costuming caught on fire, and her makeup started to burn her face. It had to be scrubbed off. She was hospitalized and recuperated for six weeks after that incident. She was replaced by a stunt double for a little bit, um, who, coincidentally, was also injured in a fire accident on the set. Yeah, you know when she goes away from Munchkinland in that red cloud of smoke? What you see is take number one, because frankly, there was no take two, because that's when it all erupted in mm-hmm. chaos. That was funny. She, like, refused to do any more special effects work. In yeah. fact, when she reached for the shoes and there seems to be fire, it's actually just shooting apple juice, and they sped up the film. She's like, no more fire. Yeah. End of story. I'm playing with it. You know, his breaking point was the liquid diet. My breaking point is catching on fire and looking like a mummy when my son comes to visit me. That's right. So... Fair enough. Sure. So she's only on the screen for 12 minutes. Can you believe that? And, and she's doing three roles. She's Elmira Gulch. She's the Wicked Witch of the West. And she's briefly the Wicked Witch of the East during the tornado scene. And she coincidentally is the only other person that got to wear the red slippers in that Ooh, scene. Ooh, interesting. Hmm. Well, isn't she freaking scary, though? Little five-foot her. She's All these women are so tiny. Judy Garland, 4'11". Billy Burke, 5'3". Margaret Hamilton, five feet tall. Teeny tiny women. I remember being so mad at Miss Gulch when I was a little kid. I was so mad. I was so mad at her. But the Wicked Witch of the West is number four on the American Film Institute's 50 Greatest Villains. Can you imagine who the first three are? Any guesses? No. I am totally drawing a blank. She is behind Hannibal Lecter. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. Norman Bates. Oh, yeah. And Darth Vader. (gasps) She's number four. Wow, that's an honor. Yeah. She often signed her autograph, Wicked Witch of the West, Mm -hmm. or sometimes just three W's, which is awesome. Yep. But honestly, she was kind of disturbed by how scared little kids were of her. Remember I said they used to run away or used to yell at her for being mad? Like, I probably would have yelled at her. For being mean. Yeah, yeah. Almost 30 years later, she tried to fix this situation. She went on Mr. Rogers to explain that she's just an actress in a costume playing a role. And she's just really nice. She's really nice. So don't be afraid. Yeah, she loved kids her whole life. She was on the Beverly Hills Board of Education from 1948 till 1951. She taught Sunday school. I do not know why all this makes me laugh. That dichotomy just makes me laugh. I think I would have really liked her. She was on an episode of Sesame Street that aired when I was six. It only aired once. She crashed her broom on Sesame Street and couldn't leave until she mended her ways. But that episode, I guess, was deemed so disturbing to children that they, as far as I know, as far as I can tell, it has never once aired again. Wow. 
I know. But she had a big career after Oz. Yes. Not just playing witches. As a matter of fact, right after Oz, she went off to play a leading role in Babes in Arms with Judy Garland. And she made 77 more movies. 77. She's on an episode of The Addams Family. She's Morticia Addams' mother. I know. Isn't that I awesome? Know, that is. She was on a, As the World Turns. She was on a soap opera. The career span of this woman and the mediums that she was able to act in is just pretty amazing. You know when she made most of her money, though? A commercial. The Maxwell House commercial. She played the general store manager. You know, like, Flo is now for Progressive. The icon. You see Flo. You Mm -hmm. know what company that is. Or that duck. She was the Flo of that era. You see her. You know, it's a Maxwell House commercial. That's right. Kind of, But that's where all her money came from. That's the money spinner right there. Margaret Hamilton died at the age of 82 in 1985 following a heart attack. She died in her sleep. She was cremated and her ashes are scattered in upstate New York, which is probably why we couldn't find a grave for her. (laughs) Well, uh, I definitely think despite all her roles, she's an icon. This is another person we remember mostly for her role in The Wizard of Oz. And someone I would like a lot. Thanks for listening. Do you like what you heard? Tell some friends and or leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or however you're listening to the show right now. It really does help other people find the show. And speaking of other people, why don't you join us in the lounge? The History Chicks Podcast Lounge is a private Facebook group. You can get to it by going to our public Facebook page. Just click the join button, answer a simple question that I'm sure all of you can answer. You have to answer it. We aren't letting people in that don't. And join in on the conversations that are going on in there. Beckett and I met online. And so we thought it would be fun to give other people the opportunity. And it's working because people are meeting up all over the country. Recently, we started a community cookbook in there. There's treasured recipes from members of the community, and there is a curated list of listener-recommended podcasts. We'd like to thank Dita and Sean for taking care of those. But come on, join us over in the lounge. Finally, we'll talk about this more in upcoming months. Beckett and I are planning a History Chicks field trip. We're going to see some of the places that we've only talked about over the years. And you are going to be able to come with us. So pencil us in for next June for an adventure in London.
It's the devil in the whiskey. It's the devil in the whiskey, not me. It's the devil in the whiskey. It's the devil in the whiskey, not me. We're in love with a face like the moon. Eyes like the skies over Delaware. We fell in love far too soon. It's the devil in the whiskey. It's the devil in the whiskey.